I'm El Kamihira, and welcome to Subject to Power. We know we live in a patriarchal world, and as women, we're certainly aware of misogyny. It's kind of the water we all swim in. But my guest today, Christine Forner, has developed very interesting theories about what misogyny actually is, how it developed, and what it means for us as human beings. Christine is a clinical social worker who specializes in treating people who have experienced severe trauma, dissociative disorders, complex PTSD, early childhood harms, and so on. She's past president of the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation and writes and lectures on treating complex trauma all over the world. I talked with Christine about her fascinating theories and so much more. I've been a feminist and been studying what was going on with women since the early 90s. And it didn't really start making sense to me until I brought in the neurobiological underpinnings of what we do as a species when we are traumatically stressed out. And I also didn't understand what we are like when we are safe. And it's that years and decades that I've been involved in working with people We are making the mistake, I think, by thinking that this is just about power. There is a reason why power is so tempting in a traumatized world. Power is a trauma symptom. The theories of mind that we've got going on are all flawed if we do not incorporate the the utter pain and distress of detachment. And it's really understanding that the central nervous system and our minds aren't on the same page. This notion that we can think our way out of things is part of the patriarchy. It is not really accurate in how we are as a species, except all the things that we need to be studying of how we are as a species is grossly undervalued, if not completely unknown. So to me, I'm not sure that I ever could have gotten here if I didn't spend those 20 years working with extraordinarily traumatized people. I'm not sure I could have gotten here if I didn't actually understand fundamentally the process of dissociation, the process of fight, flight, freeze, shame, fawning, tonic immobility, and also without understanding the neurobiological underpinnings of mindfulness. You make these connections that it's not just about the common ways of thinking about patriarchy and misogyny and the origins of those two. There are certain, you know, stories we kind of take for granted about how those came to be. And I would love to hear you talk about an alternative way of looking at that, a reframing, yeah. Almost everybody that I, I will bring up when I talk about misogyny and the patriarchy, I realize that what I'm talking about is likely not what they're talking about. Because almost everybody says, well, it's because men were strong. Okay. So if we just go with this notion that men are strong and that's why it is, they just took this, it doesn't explain the amount of rape, the amount of domestic violence, the amount of of torturing human beings for slavery. It doesn't explain holocausts and genocides. It doesn't explain the psychotic nature of the patriarchy because all of those things are symptoms of a psychopathic nature. And what I mean by psychopathic is that 
there is a way of attempting to get through life by harming other people, by stressing other people out, by not taking accountability, by being just strictly an individual, by not being emotional. I am talking about basically how we describe masculinity. But to me, I'm not sure that it's masculinity. I think it's psychopathy. It just so happens because of male neurobiology that they are more vulnerable to psychopathy than females are. And there's neurobiological reasons and evidences and theories that make sense of that. What we do know is that something drastically changed about 10,000 years ago in the way humans behaved. Lots of things started happening 10,000 years ago. Agriculture started happening. Animal domestication started happening. The working theories on the origin of patriarchy is that it's just sort of taking a normal neurobiological or biomechanical underpinning of men and um, twisting it a bit because as soon as we started owning land with agriculture, that became something to protect. Once again, doesn't address and make sense and meaning of the profound amount of violence that we're all experiencing. But when you sort of understand how a human being behaves when it is under a great deal of stress and For males in particular, any type of maternal stress can affect how their brain develops and how they regulate their affect, which is their emotional system. So probably what likely happened, what I think makes much more sense, is that there was this this perfect storm that happens when we start to do agriculture. We start to store our grains, whether it be rice or barley or wheat or whatever, we'll have to store it for the first time and store it over winter, meaning that it's getting rained on or it's getting snowed on. Beer and alcohol fermentation really started about this time. Fetal alcohol syndrome would completely explain all of this. Or having animals around us for the first time and us being exposed to viruses that we had never been exposed to before when we weren't living so close with animals. That could also explain what happened um, because that is actually something that would make biological or neurobiological sense. The other thing that could have happened was the dependency now on one particular thing, which would make a famine happen, which would make the mother and the father be distressed because food isn't readily available. So it was likely these three things that created an offspring who was harder to regulate So it is likely that several offspring were born with either fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol syndrome and the mom was stressed or fetal alcohol syndrome and the mom was stressed and she caught a flu. Whatever that was, it would have been impossible to regulate that child and that child would have managed that dysregulation or that detachment. It would have been crying. It would have been making noise. We're not designed to make noise. We're not designed to cry like that. It draws upon too many predators. So likely there would have been something that made a person traumatized and that psychopathic tendency then would have gone to be very reactive to a parent that is full of the ability to care, but it can't get in because of the brain damage that's been done. That actually makes perfect sense. And that actually lines up with what we know in trauma theories and dissociation. And the thing about being born with fetal alcohol syndrome is those front brain structures are very seriously impaired. And it's those front brain structures where all of our humanity resides. When you have all of your empathy and your attunement and your front brain structures are on full blast, 
it eliminates dissociation. Dissociation is what covers up pain. Detachment is extraordinarily painful. Like it is the most painful, most intolerable, most, it's just a pain that we don't even really have a language for because we don't really talk about it, but it is an unbearable, intolerable feeling. And human beings will do just about anything to not feel it. And so when someone has all of their ventral medial prefrontal cortex and all of the caring maternal and paternal systems on, dissociation goes away and you're left with all this pain. But if you don't comprehend that that pain is an internal memory, you have this pain and you can't regulate it. You're going to attack the thing that you think is creating your pain. That's where misogyny was born, I think. Yeah, which is... Yeah, which makes so much sense to me when you lay it out like that. It really does. It does fit. Like, like so many things get explained by this that make perfect sense of how we work as a species. Our neurobiology tells a completely different story than our stories. Yes. In fact, right now, living in the midst of patriarchy, one of the most like prevailing myth of evolutionary psychology is the strongest or the fittest to yeah. survive. And so can you talk about, can you kind of debunk that? Right. So when you, when you really take a look at what a human being is, right? Every creature on the planet has some type of defense mechanism. My dogs, my beautiful dogs that are very domesticated and very mushy, they still have claws. They still have teeth. They've got strong muscles. They have speed. Their eyes are on the front of their head. They've just been domesticated, meaning the stressful parts of being out in the wild has been eliminated. So that's, you know, wolves have these very strong, sharp features. There's a scientist who's been studying this for a long time. He was a Russian scientist who was studying how you can take a very wild creature and you can domesticate it very shortly. And when you domesticate it, you actually change its physical features. So a puppy dog's ears get really floppy and the nose gets shorter and we can adapt some of their defense mechanisms. But the real defense mechanism doesn't go away. When you put a human being out into the wild, we are the most defenseless creature out there. We have extraordinarily weak muscles compared to every other mammal or animal in the animal kingdom. We have very thin skin. Our muscles probably are like um, Wagyu beef, right? Like we are probably very tender and very fat, which would make us very tasty. We do not have claws. We do not have teeth. And the more human we became, the less defended we became. We do not see well compared to predators. We do not hear well compared to predators. We are really a sitting human, not even a sitting duck. We are a sitting human. And even if you were to take the strongest human being and you put them in the middle of Africa or you put them in the top of the North Pole with no shoes, no clothing, no tools, nothing but bare body, hours. We will live hours. We cannot live by ourselves. We are not the strongest. We are not even the smartest. There are other animals that have far bigger brain structures. Neanderthal was likely much smarter than we are. Their brain structures were much bigger than ours, but they were more wild and we are tame. We have evolved to be domesticated. We have evolved to be tame. We put all of our defenses, what makes us survive as a species, not into our own baskets, but into somebody else's basket. In us being able to communicate like this, into our social connection, into our attachment, into things like empathy and compassion, and even identity. That sense of self is part of what keeps us being an individual and also being in a pack system or a tribe system. 
So everything that we think makes us a unique species actually is our defense mechanisms. But what we've been measuring is a species in distress, not a species in their natural environment. If we were to look at what we are supposed to be like in our natural environment, empathy, and and empathy isn't just like, oh, I can tell that you feel bad. For us human beings, empathy actually is, I can feel that you feel bad. There are brain structures inside of me that are designed to read and communicate and sense and feel your central nervous system. Like even right now, my central nervous system is speaking to your central nervous system and your central nervous system is speaking to mine. But evolutionarily wise, we're not the strongest. We're the weakest. We were the junk food of the African savanna. Everything wanted to eat us. I'm sure everything did eat us. And most of our fossil records show that everything ate us. The thing that helped us survive was that we worked as a hive mind more than anything else, and that we were alloparented, meaning that at least four, if not six adults were taking care of one child all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for at least seven years. And we haven't been like that in 10,000 years or more. Well, most of us, we took away our defense mechanism. And that defense mechanism is the maternal birthing homo sapien mother and the paternal homo sapien birthing father. A mom and dad were around that infant 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a really long time. And there were other people helping them so that they could be with the kids. And then there was other people helping them. And that's completely opposite to what we got going on today. Yeah. What a disaster. It is a disaster. And it's something that can't get fixed with thinking. It can't get fixed as as educated as we are if we do not start to regulate our infants, if we do not start learning how to regulate ourselves, how much we need to learn the skill of co-regulation. And all of these things are really super body orientated. They're affectively orientated, right? The first three years of life, we are nothing but a ball of sensory and affective information. So we're sensory and emotional information. We communicate. Our first language is feelings. And we live in a world that tells us that they shouldn't exist, that, that it's more professional to have no emotions, that, that you'll be a better doctor, a better sports person, a better this, a better that if you have no emotions. That's all patriarchy. That's all misogyny. Because we are supposed to have emotions and be sophisticated with them because that's how we communicate with each other. And it's how we help each other not become violent, frightened, dysregulated, ill, mentally ill, physically ill people. So I want to kind of delve into what trauma does in a granular way, like what what trauma actually does do. There's something called the cascade model of defense, which is a really, it's a much broader than fight flight. Fight flight is, it's quite a patriarchal way of viewing our trauma responses because dissociation is probably the most common trauma response that all human beings have. But basically... If we consider what we would have done if we were being preyed upon, we have an active state of defense. And so our brain structures and neurochemistry work one way. And then we have our inactive states of defense where our neurochemistry, neuroelectricity and brains work in a different way. And this stuff is driven by the central nervous system. It's not driven by the mind. So this mental illness notion is actually a misnomer. The central nervous system, it gets its information from the the environment and it goes up from the central nervous system over the right, over the left, back and then down again. So it's all supposed to be connected. So 
If we have this experience where we are hunting and gathering, say, for example, and we hear a noise and um, our emergency systems become engaged. So our front brain will turn off a little or a lot. We will move into a sympathetic response. So we'll move into this emergent active response that is dorsal vagal, not ventral vagal. Ventral vagal is relational and social. This is something called the polyvagal theory, which really talks about how people keep us calm and we have this whole social engagement system. When we move into this defense of hard freeze of trying to become invisible so that the predator doesn't see us, we'll get like really hard and our eyes will get really big and our ears, we might hear things a little bit differently. We may even hear ringing in our ears because the whole system is attempting to be as quiet and as invisible as possible. We might not be able to speak. We're not worrying about other people as we are trying to save ourselves. If that doesn't work, the next favorable way of surviving that is to run. So we'll move into a flight system. But if we're in this flight response, it's where the body wants to escape away from danger or towards safety. So there's still an action or a movement taken. And if that doesn't work, we go into fight. Fight tends to um, have internal choreography where insight goes away. So we're not asking the questions, what am I doing here? Because that'll slow us down if we're fighting a tiger. We're very externally focused and not internally focused because when somebody's in an anger state, when somebody's enraged, their system will not and cannot become insightful because those two things don't happen at the same time. So if the system doesn't work, the system then will start to do sort of a hard freeze. That means if, if the fighting doesn't work, the fleeing doesn't work, the freezing doesn't work, that means the tiger's got us. And our system then stops this fight flight and it moves into an inactive state of defense. So this inactive state of defense, it's like the brakes to this gas. The front brain is actually shut off a little or a lot. And the back brain is on fire. When we go into anything that is dissociative, the front brain, the insula, which is a brain structure, it actually cuts information off from the body. The thalamus will purposefully scatter information so that sense perception and thinking get separated. And the front brain can become hyper aroused. So we can think a lot, but we don't really have a connection to our bodies. We don't have a connection to how we feel. That's because we're now inside the tiger's mouth. That can be uh, a tonic immobility. Also, the body um, secretes itself with natural opioids and cannabinoids. So we're like stoned. We can't feel. We're anesthetized. And that's because our body is trying to play dead and it is disconnecting information. And when we're in this state, doing nothing feels safer than doing something. So, you know, are people depressed? Or are they in a dissociative response? We don't know because the mental health system does not talk about dissociation at all. It doesn't teach it. It actually tells lots of people it doesn't believe in it. It's just now, maybe in the last five years, that other areas are starting to go, oh, wait a minute, what's this thing? But if we're talking about infants, infants can't do anything. They cannot flee. They cannot move on purpose. They cannot move with intention. They don't understand the world. And so their bodies almost instantly go into a state of dissociation. And the reason why it goes into a state of dissociation is because an infant's body can only communicate distress via the central nervous system becoming inflamed. And the only way that it really communicates this inflammation is via pain. So when infants and children are left alone, this is how I say misogyny is fundamentally a trauma because in a misogynistic world, the parent aren't allowed in any way, shape or form to be with their infants the way human infants need to be. So if a human infant is experiencing any type of detachment, it goes into a trauma response. 
because it's experiencing pain that's not being stopped, pain that's not being cared for. And I know this is super hard for people to hear because this is what we're told, especially in North America. We're told to let our kids cry it out without understanding that that central nervous system has no idea that it's living in a house in North America. That central nervous system was born in Africa in a place where everything wanted to eat it. It's not ever supposed to be alone. And when it is, it very quickly goes into excruciating pain. And we don't consider it in a patriarchal world. If we don't satiate hunger, very quickly it hurts because the more emergent something is, the more painful it is. Or thirst, the more emergent it is, the more painful it is. And detachment and human attachment trumps hunger and thirst when it comes to our survival. Bonding is way more important than even food and water for us as a species. And we don't consider this in a patriarchal world. We, we don't understand this when we really vilify the thing that stops that pain, which is maternal and paternal care and needs meeting. So in a misogynistic world, in a patriarchal world, everybody's traumatized. We've normalized it. And in order to change this, we have to start managing this kind of pain because healing this pain is knee buckling. People would rather go to the moon than deal with this pain. And that's probably why we went to the moon instead of dealing with this pain. And even, even if we take a look at world leaders who've created wars, this is how come they're creating wars because sitting still will signal the body that the danger is over and the dissociation will go away and it'll try to heal and it'll try to go to our baseline of being regulated, of being connected, of being bonded. But in order to go from a place of trauma where you're dissociating this pain to a place of healing, it's very counterintuitive. So if the body has experienced this kind of trauma, we will sacrifice everything to stay attached. But when a body becomes safe, when a body becomes still, it's going to start to try and feel what it feels and know what it knows. Because as much as our minds don't understand where we're supposed to be as a species, our bodies do. And our bodies want to be regulated. They want to be in this place of being connected, of being empathic, of being loved. And it's in our language. It's in our art. It's in everything we talk about, except it's not romance. It's a biological imperative. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I would love for you to elaborate on maternal stress and what that does to the infant and the difference between male and female infants. So maybe we can start there with misogyny as the factor that causes maternal stress and the repercussions of that. Sure. When I, when I talk about misogyny, I'm really actually talking about the vilification and the phobia of human care. We've just labeled it as feminine. And we've labeled basically psychopathy and all of its iterations as masculine. But there's lots of men who are very chock full of this capacity to care. And there's a lot of women who do not have sort of that maternal way of being. Like in an alloparented world, if you have a tribe of 300 people and four to six people are taking care of one baby, there's not that many people having babies. I think we know this. I think we know that not every woman was designed to have a child. To sit with an infant for seven years would be excruciatingly painful for a lot of people. But if we're talking about maternal stress, we know that male infants mature slower than female infants. We don't exactly know why because we're not really studying it. But what we do know is that male infants if experienced maternal stress, have a higher vulnerability 
to their brain structure being underdeveloped, particularly their emotional or probably it's affective. Emotions are what we name affect and emotions can change through culture to culture to culture. But the affect, the neurochemical, traceable, measurable, neurobiological underpinnings of a sense perception that is asking for a need, that's basically what affect is. So if an infant has a more immature capacity to manage affect, they're going to experience that affect not as slightly painful, but extremely painful very, very quickly. And male infants are much more vulnerable for this. One reason why this could be is that female infants, even though we may not be temperamented to raise children, we are biologically designed to have infants. So we do know that females excrete much more natural opioids than males. We are born with much more natural opioids than male infants. So it could be that with the immaturity of that brain that's been affected by maternal stress, that baby's already feeling that stress in utero and it's affecting how the brain develops. So the brain is now getting ready to manage a toxic world versus a safe world. And if it comes out with that inability to tolerate affect, it's going to experience it as pain and it's going to dissociate. But male infants don't necessarily have the padding of natural opioids that female infants do so that they may move more into the biological dissociation, not just the chemical dissociation. But the insula stops working and the thalamus stops working. So they disconnect from how they feel through dissociation. But in doing that, things like empathy will not grow. Attunement will not grow. Regulation of feelings will not grow. You end up basically with the neurobiology of a toddler or an infant that never reaches full adulthood. And we have deemed that as being the superior quality of humanity, which is basically just psychopathy. Because the only way to manage the humanity that they are supposed to have, which is feeling things, sensing things, feeling other people, receiving that love, receiving that care that regulates our central nervous system, that calms it down. Human infants can't do this by themselves at birth. They can't do it probably until they're you know, 25. So those years of infancy, when they're not being regulated, they're going to have to manage the pain of dysregulation, the pain of disconnection some way, but they're always going to want it and need it, but they don't know how to get it. And it's going to send them into a terror. It's going to send them into a fight. It's going to send them into a trauma response. So jumping from that to the role of, of care and healthy connection and attachment, um, kind of elaborate on that misogyny isn't just a hatred of women because we hate women. So it's that hatred all of, of what it so, is. Yeah. So if we take all the conditions of domestic violence, the constant terror, especially the most common types of violence, of course, of control. So you've got lots of sexual coercion. You've got lots of sexual assault going on. You've got lots of terror going on. You've got lots of control over finances. There's no one really supporting that mother so that she can be fully present for her child, so that she can be safe to use all of her own neurobiology that's involved in attuning and feeling and sensing her infants. So that infant who's depending on another person to feel them, to know exactly what's going wrong at exactly the time so that those needs can be met, all of those things get removed in domestic violence and all of those things get removed in a misogynistic situation where that parent is not given the authority 
to do things like a tune. So what I mean by a tune, there are brain structures and they're very strong when a woman is in the latter bits of her pregnancy. We call it pregnancy brain, but it's actually not pregnancy brain. It's likely when our ventral medial prefrontal cortex and the default mode network, the same brain structures that are involved in mindfulness are on. So when we are in a mindful state, we're very internally focused, right? We can feel our sense perception. We can feel our what our lungs are doing. We can feel what we're feeling because all of our attention is inward. That along with being that kind of attuned to your child and yourself is how a mother should be with support of the father. For a baby to be cared for, your goal is to have it so that it isn't in any state of distress ever. And we know this because we've studied things like secure attachments, that the brain structures of people who are securely attached are the same brain structures of people who practice a lot of mindfulness. Mindfulness is something that is, it's one of the few interventions that actually not only changes the function of the brain, but the structure of the brain. So it grows gray and white matter when we do it. It affects our central nervous system. There's no other therapy, like talk therapy will not do this. Cognitive behavioral therapy is not and will not and can never get these results. So you have to ask, why is mindfulness so powerful? Why is mindfulness so altering of our neurobiology and our neurochemistry? And it's likely because that mindful brain is a parent brain or a mother brain. It's the language of the mother. Like when everything wants to eat us, we evolved this thing where when we close our eyes and tune out the world where everything wants to eat us, we feel better. So in order for the mother to be fully mindful, all of her needs have to be met. She has to be extraordinarily safe because mindfulness is a very rival brain activity to dissociation. They will not happen at the same time. And if you introduce mindfulness to somebody who's dissociating, it's kind of like waking somebody up in the middle of open heart surgery. It's very, very painful and very, very frightening. And that's how powerful mindfulness is. So if you have someone who's extraordinarily mindful with someone who's extraordinarily dissociated, you're going to freak that person out because that person does not comprehend what safety feels like and safety doesn't feel safe for them. It feels like pain and suffering because that's what it is because that's what's being dissociated. So misogyny, I really think is this disdain for care because when care, proper care, mindful care, there's a word that a colleague in mine uh, have developed called securefulness. It's a therapeutic orientation. It's making sure that the therapist is in this state of mindfulness to attune and using secure attachment and mindfulness as helping that client heal. If you say nothing to a client and you constantly stay in a state of securefulness as a therapist, the client will start to heal. They don't have to talk about what's happened to them because the neurobiology of what it's like to be connected for two people is incredibly powerful and healing except the person who's practicing securefulness has to understand that when we turn on this human connection, it is like waking somebody up in the middle of open heart surgery. I'm thinking this has to somehow be connected to why we pair up, why pairing is so fundamental in this crazy, dangerous world. We form our little units too. We are grossly relationally starved as a species. We are starving and it all gets funneled into sex because we don't understand relational attunement. Like there's no word for this kind of stuff. It's not in our vernacular. It's not in our consciousness. Like just imagine what it would be like living in a world where every human being that you interact with understands you, comprehends your insides, 
Um, and I know this sounds like a weird utopia, but this is what our biology talks about. This is what our biology craves. We crave this enormous amount of connection because that's how we feel safe as a species. Because we can connect to ourselves in a completely different way. We can regulate ourselves as well as being regulated by other people. I have a, a beautiful client. I've been working with her for a long, long time. Very traumatized person. When I first met her, first appointment was okay. Second appointment, she was clawing at her neck and bleeding. And she was in such an intense flashback. Her central nervous system was speaking in a language that there are no words for to describe to me, to show me, to talk to me and tell me how frightened she was to be alive. And I just, I wrapped her in a blanket. Like I swaddled her central nervous system. I put her in the corner and said, I'm not going to touch you. I'm going to make sure that you're safe. I'm not interested in hurting you. We did this for three years. Then she started coming in and I'd wrap her up and she would sleep then for another two years. And then eventually I was able to do some bilateral tapping, which is a lot like rocking, right? So I'm trying to teach her central nervous system to start settling down. Words will never get in there. Language will never get in there. Me sitting there and telling her, you know, maybe you should think about your choices is a stupid thing to say to that person. But I sat with her for years, helping her feel safe and then showing her over time, I'm not interested in her vulnerability. I'm not here to shame her. I'm not here to blame her. I'm not here to demand action from her. I'm not here to make sure that she fits this treatment plan or whatever. My job was to, to help her central nervous system keep safe. Last week we had an appointment and she said some of the most beautiful things. And we've worked through a lot of things. We've now able to talk and she's able to be more regulated. She's probably going to have a small life. She's had a lot of really horrifying things happen to her, like mind boggling traumatic things from a very young age, like infancy and, and one, two and three. And she said to me, she's happy. She's been able to find love. She has a partner where they don't exchange, I love you, but they exchange, I adore you. And he's very, very kind to her. And she's has some good friends, not very many, but a couple of really good unconditional friends who can hang out with her during her bad times. And the way that I helped her go from point A to point B was applying what I have inside of me, this neurobiological underpinning to keep another human being safe. So her body was able to repair many things because it understood that I wasn't going anywhere and she's safe. And I've had this experience over and over and over and over and over again. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of the most extremely traumatized people and they don't get better by me talking to them about what happened. They get better by me showing them safety and boundaries and respect and dignity and they get better and they get really better. And then when they feel that they can tolerate their feelings, then I help them start to go inside themselves and care for those feelings. Listen to what that screaming terror is screaming about, because all feelings are just an ask or a tell. But most of the time, it's an ask for something. Hunger asks for food. Thirst asks for water. Shame is probably asking for connection because it's likely the feeling we get from disconnection in infancy. Fear is asking for safety. Anger is asking usually for some type of boundaries or some type of, of anger is a beautiful emotion. Anger is different than rage. Anger is not violent. Anger is often this internal body knowing that something happened that shouldn't have or that dignity hasn't been met. And for us human beings, dignity is our lowest common denominator. It's our lowest standard of care. And if we don't get treated that way, our bodies will quickly move into a trauma state. Betrayal trauma which I think is everybody, everybody on the planet is experiencing betrayal trauma. So like that, that notion of betrayal 
is part of the misogyny and patriarchy. I don't exactly know why women are a bit more resilient when it comes to traumatic stress, because for a woman to become psychopathic or to turn violent, she has to been through a, a, like mind blowingly horrific amounts of pain and suffering. Is that because our bodies are born with an extra ability to dissociate? And so we can still keep our empathy intact while we manage this traumatic stress and males can't maybe is it because maybe we're born with a bigger, robust ventral medial prefrontal cortex in case we are about to produce children? That might be it too. Um, I just came back from teaching at a conference. I teach an all-day thing called Dissociation 101. I've been teaching it for years. It's one of my favorite classes to teach. But I ask every year, how many of you have ever been taught how to work with sexual assault in post-secondary education? None of them. We we don't talk about it in post-secondary education. Um, the thing about the dissociative field is we've been looking at perpetrators straight in the eyes, dead square in the face for 40 years. And we know what's going on out there. We know how prevalent and how common sexual abuse is. You, you have a world where little boys aren't allowed to touch. They're not allowed to be cuddled. They're not allowed to be soothed. And they need it more than female babies. And they're told you're not allowed to touch. You're not allowed to connect. You're not allowed to be anything other than a provider and a strong person. And that's it. You're not allowed to have anything to do with anybody until you reach the age of 13 or 11 or even younger. And it's go for it, but only with your penis. Like that human attachment is getting funneled into this weird thing of what we consider to be sexual. As a species, if all of our relational needs are met, we're not that horny. <laughs> Excuse my language, but we're not. I think a lot of people in the field of complex trauma and dissociation, dissociation in particular, deserve Nobel Peace Prizes. Because these people have figured this out. These people have been looking at this ugly, 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 ugly side of humanity. Like we are the people that, that have been sticking with those who've been abused in organized ways where everybody says it doesn't really exist. And it's like, yeah, the evidence is everywhere. And we haven't stopped looking at it. We look at what it's like to be sex trafficked. We look at what it's like to be horribly, weirdly, bizarrely continuously raped by your father and assisted by your mother. So we look at things that people don't want to look at in the field of dissociation. And, you know, once again, I just got back from a conference and everybody pretty much says the same thing. And the science says the same thing, that relational care is how you heal these wounds. And these are where the wounds are coming from, is not being relationally connected. Dissociative identity disorder is, it's created by two things. It's created by an enormous amount of neglect and an enormous amount of, of physical and sexual harm. And those two things scatter identity, but neglect scatters identity. Sexual harm scatters identity. The thing about neglect is it's invisible. And we're all neglected in a misogynistic patriarchal world. Some people it's like 10 decibels, other people it's like a thousand decibels, but it is still a prevalent part in a misogynistic patriarchal world. Everybody that I've worked with, if they've worked with me long enough, they will reach this point where they are aware and no longer dissociating of how much pain they are in from having to be a boy or having to be a girl in this world. And it is knee buckling, almost blindingly painful. There is no language for how painful this is. And this is for people who haven't really hurt anybody. These are people who are just, you know, going about their lives. I think people who hurt people are experiencing even more pain 
because hurting somebody is a good way of keeping feelings at bay. It's a good way of dissociating. Self-harm is a very common side effect of being hurt because it either, and uh, a woman named Bethany Brand and her team has done a lot of this research. Self-harm will either pop somebody into a dissociative state or pop them out of a dissociative state. When we hurt other people, it's that tenfold. So when we hurt other people, it either pops us into a dissociative state or pops us out of a dissociative state. This is domestic violence and and various levels of psychopathy. So this disdain for care and idealization of disassociation or... Idealization of psychopathy, not necessarily... Psychopathy, that, yeah. Because we don't talk about dissociation. It's... it's yeah, no, psychopathy it, more like yeah. uncaring. Yeah. Uncaring. Uh, Humanity versus inhumanity. Yeah, humanity versus inhumanity. Uh, so it's been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah. And if me, just as a complete layperson, would say we are living in a endless, perpetual trauma, there's war, sexual abuse, rape, murder of women, femicide is rampant. I'm thinking of it all as kind of a package that conditions men in one direction towards violence and women in another direction towards victimization. I I think it's a bit more than condition because the science does show that male infants are far more vulnerable to this than female infants. And and so, you know, this notion of, of conditioning trauma begets trauma. So it's chicken or egg, but more than likely somebody born with their ventral medial prefrontal cortex, not able to grow. So that ventral medial prefrontal cortex is our relating brain. It's our regulatory system. It's how we regulate our feelings, our emotions. It's how we can express our feelings without going into an emergent state. It's probably something to do with the neurobiology that happened first and then the behavior that suited that or fitted that that came second. So this condition, we maybe the first hundred years of these incidences of misogyny, we would have still been talking about, we need to care. We need to care. What happened to the care? Why can't we care for this kid? Look how violent this kid is being. We can't stop this kid from being violent to that violence then taking over and just tsunamiing the rest of, of the generations that come after that. And it's a, it's a system that is very phobic of care because care eliminates the dissociative barriers, making that pain come forward. And they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to regulate it. And so to prevent that pain from happening, they're going to harm the person that they think is creating the pain. And they're also going to be harming in a way of benefiting themselves. Um, you know, when they talk about serial killers saying that they get pleasure out of killing people, it's not pleasure. It's something else. But this is a system that has never understood what it feels like to be regulated. It doesn't understand what it feels like to be calm or to be safe or to be in touch with oneself. So their description of pleasure is not the same as somebody who's regulated. It's probably filling them full of maybe opioids. And we know this even working with domestic violence, women will show up in shelters just beaten with broken bones and they can't feel it. That's dissociation doing it, not adrenaline. And so dissociation, as I said, is an opioid cannabinoid fueling system that can make the body feel euphoric. So their euphoria on harming other people is a trauma response, not something that they're doing for kicks and giggles. So, but, but obviously though, men's trauma response results in violence, whereas women's trauma responses do not result in violence. 
once again, that has to do probably with the vulnerability of the male species of not having the same ability. Is it because we produce more opioids than they do? Maybe. Is it because we have females have stronger ventral medial prefrontal cortexes? Maybe. I know women are getting abused, but so are male children nearly close as, or on the same rate that women are getting abused. It's just kind of in a different way. And I think that's, it's, it's neglect is so hard to describe because it's invisible, but the way that patriarchy for the last 6,000 years, it's, it's elevated it. It's idealized it. And if you take a look at the history of England, right. And you'll have like these Kings coming in, these are total psychopaths given a free reign and seen as great leaders right? So our stories start to be the stories of those psychopaths. The story of most religions comes from those who won. Like the Catholic church is an incredibly psychopathic organization. If everybody's in survival mode, the ones who do best in survival mode are the psychopaths because they do quite well here. They invented the system. They've invented the legal system that we got going on. They invented the economic system we got going on. They're the ones starting the wars. They're the ones getting the benefit. They're the ones that are running in politics. And we've been conditioned to see them as great leaders when they're not. It was the women's movement in the 70s that started, you know, getting away from the theories of psychology that are incredibly misogynistic and incredibly psychopathic. You think about like when Freud was giving his talk on etiology, the first talk he gave, you look who was in the audience. These are all white, upper to high class people because the lower class or middle class wouldn't have been able to go to university. So this is the aristocracy. What did they do with aristocracy kids? They gave them to a nanny and shipped them off to school. Massive attachment disorders. And they are the ones that have decided because they did well in this environment, this notion of being busy and achieving and doing well and working hard, that's a trauma symptom. Because if you sit still, you're going to start feeling your feelings. If you are a workaholic, you're not going to feel your feelings. You're always going to be doing something and thinking something. Everything that we know has been philosophizing, contemplating, managing, studying, theorizing, a traumatized species. And the ones who do best in that world are the psychopaths. Well, then the rest of people who still have a little or a lot of their humanity intact don't do well. Um, It makes me think I'm in the middle of a documentary project about how women fare in family court, i.e. not well. So when you're talking about how, who does well and who doesn't do well. So here, yes, and maternal stress. So I want you to paint a picture. So the women come in all emotional, scattered, hysterical often at their wits end, losing their children, losing their finances, losing, 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 losing. And the men come in all buttoned up, calm as can be, calm, cool and collected. They're not being abused. They're not being stressed out. They're not losing their kids. They may not care about if they lose their kids or not. They have everything to gain and nothing to lose and act accordingly, very psychopathically. Yes. Uh, And they are awarded richly. Yes. and And the woman loses even to greater degree. Another way of looking at it, right? So we have this notion that not being emotional means that you're logical, which is wholly, completely untrue. 
emotions are always logical. Emotions are sensical. Where they're coming from and what they're about can get lost in translation, but every emotion is logical. It fits a situation because emotion is hardwired. It's a reaction to the environment. And if you have never experienced a near-death situation, your body doesn't know what that feels like. If you have experienced a near-death situation, it knows what it feels like. Emotions are incredibly logical. The fact that we say that people aren't emotional is baloney. It's just a myth. But another thing that happens in those domestic violence situations, I've spent enough time with perpetrators and survivors. They say the exact same thing. They often say the same words. So you have somebody, you have a, a, say a man coming in and saying, she's abusing me. She's lying about me. They're like projecting their own inner world out into the, into what they're experiencing. They fully believe that they're being abused. They fully believe that they're being lied to. And that's because the more psychopathic that they are, the less empathy they have. And so if you don't have empathy, you have no idea what other people think. It's only your internal world. So you have a male coming in and saying, I'm being abused, I'm being harmed, sort of that darvoing thing, right? Denying attack, reverse, and all that kind of stuff. And then you have the actual victim coming in and saying, I'm being abused, I'm being this, I'm being that. The difference really is, and this is sort of how we know that the world was designed by perpetrators, is that when that person who is abusive comes in, they're certain, they are 100% certain that they're being abused. You were talking about the survivor. There's still enough dissociation. There's still enough empathy. There's still enough questioning, doubt, right? A lot of survivors are going, I think I'm being abused, but you're not totally sure because A, you are being abused and the stress chemicals and the stress hormones and everything that's going through on inside of them is happening. But the other thing is, is that they're asking themselves questions like, am I crazy here? A perpetrator never asks if they're crazy because they don't think that they are. They're certain. And that certain energy is seen as ideal in a misogynistic patriarchal world. And being doubtful is seen as weak in a misogynistic patriarchal world. And so our whole system is about protecting the perpetrators and they don't, they don't get it, right? Family law up in Canada, and I think a lot of places throughout the world, is about property, about the men owning, having ownership, and it's still given that men have ownership. It's only been a couple of years that we really started studying what's going on inside perpetrators because we just see this as a normal default method. It's just part of the patriarchy. Men are just like this. Men are just horribly violent. They were born this way. And, and if that was the case, if that was true, none of this shit would bug us. Excuse my language. None of this would bother us because we would have neurobiological underpinnings that would manage it. Things like betrayal trauma wouldn't exist. And we wouldn't dissociate because of the disconnection. And we wouldn't move into trauma states when we have these breakdowns in marriages. Like if psychopathy was a normal part of humanity, we'd be all right with it. And we're not. Nobody is. I think that's like the proof is right like there. right in front of our eyes. Um, yeah. yeah. You can look yeah. at this from every angle and it starts to become glaringly obvious that we are labeling a traumatized species particularly a psychopathic traumatized species, as normal, as ideal, as wonderful, as great. Well, as a species that is very, very soft and very, very gentle and very needy, yeah, most of us don't think like psychopaths, male and female. And not all people who do the really bad things, not all of them are psychopathic. 
But those who do have psychopathy and those who are various shades of psychopath, right? We have to start realizing they don't have anything that remotely is okay with humanity, that their whole life is designed to avoid humanity because humanity is their kryptonite. It bothers them. It hurts them. It messes them up. If you still have your humanity intact or bits of your humanity means if you still cry, you're doing a good job. If you still ask yourself, am I nuts here? You're actually quite healthy. If you still feel bad for other people, that's all humanity. We need to start teaching people what really is going on with psychopaths. We need to focus all our attention onto psychopathy. There's like something like 3 million papers on dissociative identity disorder and some like 72,000 papers on the etiology. We know we don't have to study this anymore. We know where it comes from. We don't have to study how bad it is to be sexually assaulted. We don't have to study how bad it is to be impoverished. We don't have to study how horrible racism is. We don't have to study these things because we know, we know how bad it is. What we have to study is the psychopath. We have to start paying attention to stopping this because it's these people who are destroying the world. It's these people who are the ones that are clearly going to kill us all if we don't stop them. Climate change is directly related to all of this. And we can do education the size of Mount Everest if we don't understand that there are psychopaths leading the world. And many of those psychopaths are billionaires and they are doing weird, horrible, nasty, terrible things because they can't get through their day without hurting other people. They can't let humanity in. And no matter how much we apply humanity to it, there's six to 10,000 years of evidence that shows that doesn't work. So obviously it's not just individuals. Those individuals have built structures and institutions and the whole... They built everything. What is civilization? We've been civilized, but civilization, I think in many ways is that trauma symptom. Everything that we've done that is wonderful and amazing is also probably done because we can't sit and relate to each other anymore because it would require an enormous amount of pain happening first. So, <laughs> so how do we what stop? What do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Well, if if I had if I had a magic wand and I had some some sense of agency, one of the first things I would do is I think we should start testing our politicians and making sure that you can't be a psychopath and a politician. That's pretty easy to do. Another thing that we can do is actually universal base income would take care of a fair amount of this. The other thing I would do is revamp judicial systems so that. We are able to deal with criminality in a very different way because there is only a few handful of people who are unhealable and those people need to be held accountable, but we can help other people learn to be accountable. I think another thing we need to do is make sure that judges aren't psychopaths. I wish we could change our funding so that instead of putting billions of dollars into genetic research, we put that into care centers stay in care centers for sexual assault survivors. So that's on my to-do list. I, I really want to actually start a center that is a full encompassing care center where we work with sexual assault survivors and they can stay for one week, two weeks, up to six months, but also turn it into like this massive state-of-the-art research plant center so that we can show that with maternal care and paternal care and this thing that I'm calling securefulness, along with like sensory motor and EMDR and neurofeedback and hormone balancing. So there's just lots of things that we can do that is just basic human care. If we were to give that validity and if we were to start to studying how powerful it is and 
start to really focus our attention on how we can stop psychopathy because to this date, we don't know how to stop it, but they don't really study it. They look at it as existing, but what they are defining it is, is that people are born this way. There's lots of people think that it is the psychopath that made civilization. Well, that's kind of true, but it's not good for humans. Yeah. And also I think people look at it as an unchangeable, immutable fact of life. I don't think it is, but we also haven't invented a system or resources or a way to deal with it. It's a very blank slate at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Care is powerful and humanity is inside all of us. If you are born as a homo sapien, care, and, and what I mean by care is this attuned, empathic, regulated, central nervous system, feeling safe, both relationally and connectivity wise is way more powerful because obviously it still exists. It hasn't been eradicated and they've been trying to kill it for 10,000 years. It's still strong. It's still alive. We're having this conversation. To me, that's so hopeful. And it's not going to be pretty because patriarchy is not going to go down easily and it's not going to go down without a fight, obviously. But the more that we know and the more we understand that care is actually way more powerful than this fear, we will be okay. We have a lot to fix, but yeah. You have a lot to fix, but the things that we need are readily available. Yeah. It doesn't take much. If I was to have my wish list fulfilled and I was to have this care center, I am theorizing by what I know and what I've done and what I've seen over the last 25 years. And you could actually, within a couple of years, have hundreds of people understand this care because it's in our bodies. It's in our cells. It's in every part of us that never gets a chance to shine, never gets a chance to take hold, never gets a chance to grow and develop, but it's inside every single one of us. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. I would love to hear your thoughts and comments, so please drop a note on the website or even better, take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson, and the music is by Beware of Darkness.